Our life here on Earth may appear through the glass darkly, like the backside of the tapestry, where we don't see the patterns and we can't make sense of it. That's like looking at my husband lying there in his bed, dying of cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Our Voices Matter. I'm very excited to have our guest with us today. Dr. Marsha Brennan is a modernist art historian, a professor of humanities at Rice University, particular focus on the medical humanities. She is also an artist in residence in the Department of Palliative Care and Rehabilitation Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Marsha, it is such a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk with you about a variety of things. When, when we first started talking about having this interview, doing this interview, um, of course, COVID remains a huge pandemic and a part of, of, of everything that, that we're dealing with as a society today. The last week has added and compounded uh, that pandemic with the racism, the persistent pandemic that our country has yet to deal with and is being forced to deal with now. So um, we have a lot to talk about. Um, I, I want to start by asking you to, to share with our audience what your work in the humanities is and, and what, why it's important, particularly at, at this moment in time. Thank you, Linda. I want to just begin by thanking you so much, so dearly, for inviting me to be part of your wonderful podcast, and I'm just honored to be here. And yes, this is a particularly sensitive and, and crucial moment, so um, a timely that we're having these conversations. So my work in the humanities, this has evolved um, over time. Um, I'll just begin briefly by saying that by training, I'm a modernist art historian. So my PhD is in the field of art history. Um, I've worked on modern American and European materials, and that's actually primarily how I'm best known, um, is for my work um, with museums and with um, modern modernist art history. Okay, and so what happened is um, that that work was always interested in embodiment and in issues of gender, medicine, embodiment, and humanity. Um, and particularly when we're dealing with abstractions. Um, so my first book is all about the ways in which abstractions and abstract paintings were coded so in, in sexed and gendered terms. So how were things that didn't appear to have bodies, how were they given those attributes? So there's a long history here um, regarding the ways in which my own interests have come together. Um, as the time went on, I also have become interested in philosophical questions, metaphysical questions, and ethical questions. And so taking what can be done within any one discipline and then understanding how we might undo those boundaries and remake those boundaries to recreate something that is itself almost a living field. And so as time has gone on, um, and my experiences have gone on, um, the idea of working in the humanities as broadly written has had a lot more significance and value than just for me staying within one discipline. The joke is mm -hmm. we're living in we're living in Houston. There's no zoning in Houston. So <laughs> I, I've taken I've taken that I think to an extraordinary degree, far beyond what any city planner might have imagined, but Rice has provided a great platform, and the city of Houston has provided a wonderful, gracious platform for the kind of, you know, deconstruction and, and recreation of where those boundaries might lie. So given your, um, your approach and everything that, that you just talked about, the, I love the, the no zoning analogy, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, what, are, what are your thoughts about, about where we are right now and, and how 
we will come out of this? So I don't know how we will come out of this. I can tell you how I hope we might we might come out of this. Um, so, and Linda, I also want to go back and thank you again a second time because in preparing for our conversation, um, this has been a kind of first step in how I'm going to be preparing even for when I teach in the fall because there are things on the table now that that weren't on the table even a month ago, six months ago, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I've been thinking more about the idea of the pandemic as everyone of course, has been who works in this field, because it's going to come up not only in culture and society, but in the classroom too. And so in looking at this, it's so interesting. Here's what I found. The word itself, pandemic, it relates literally to all people. Look at this. The prefix is pan, P-A-N, the Mm -hmm. root demos, D-E-M-O-S. So a pandemic is a topic which relates to all people. And so it doesn't necessarily have to just relate to illness or disease. It's any kind of universalizing topic, even though as it's used today, we think of it as something catastrophic relating to disease. And so what I was thinking about with this is how fascinating um, that resonance is because there's a paradox in this. Um, On the one hand, with the pandemic, the idea that all people are susceptible to disease, we are all vulnerable, we are all frail, right and potentially so and I think that it's useful to be reminded and I think we all we all are reminded um, of that frailty partly for to do to keep ourselves safe right and so that we can identify you know what's appropriate and and what and what are the the sensible and and right things for us to be doing Um, and to acknowledge that vulnerability is kind of a shared condition on the other hand It's also extremely clear, both from a um, public health standpoint and then recently, right, culturally, politically and socially, that not there is not such a thing necessarily as this universalizing idea of all people. There's a history here regarding healthcare disparities, entrenched differences. And there's a great deal of conversation about the ways in which the burdens of this time are not borne equally by all members of society. And so we're living this moment of paradox whereby um, we are all vulnerable, but yet somehow we are not all equally vulnerable. And so the pandemic requires us to think about those differences and how there are those differences between ourselves and one another. And in a way, those differences are sacred. Um, I don't know if you've seen this piece, but there's um, a a philosophical text written quite a long time ago by a philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas called The Face of the Other. And in this piece, what he argues, and he was, this comes up within post-colonial studies, but he's arguing against kind of paradigms of power that are humanist and totalizing, saying that when you go in, everyone must acknowledge the irreconcilable differences between oneself and one o- and another, because the moment that you lose sight of that, you're essentially negating the specific individuality of the other. You're essentially projecting yourself and your idea of either a humanist ideal or your own personal ideal onto others, and then power relations become unequal. And so those very differences are crucial, and even even he didn't use this word, but I will, even sacred in a way, Right, and keeping in mind the irreconcilable differences between oneself and and another. So the face of the other. And so I think that that's super important that we keep that in mind at the same time where I'm gonna go back and do the paradox. We have to acknowledge that in a pandemic, this is a state that relates to everyone. Um, You know, no one gets a pass on things related to healthcare. We are all 
vulnerable human beings living in, in bodies um, that are susceptible to, um, to illness um, and its effects, um, as well as cultural conditions and their effects. So the pandemic re requires us both to acknowledge the other and to try to find a way to move beyond this conception of entrenched otherness as well. And so that's what I see as the paradox of the pandemic. And so then, I, again, with the answer, it's like with the Texas two-step, right? We need to move the left and the right. Like, and I don't know in terms of how that might be operationalized, but I will say, as far as how we acknowledge this, those differences and attempt to overcome them, I would say that your podcast represents a very, very promising avenue and um, for doing this, right? And the outreach where we can have these conversations. Well, that's certainly the goal. There's no doubt about that. It's so interesting um, to hear you put the paradox in such such clear terms. When the pandemic first broke out, I, I, like many others, thought that this was going to be the moment where we finally came together. Because, as you say, we are all human beings living within these bodies that are susceptible to disease. And the playing field is level when it comes to the virus. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. We are all susceptible to it. And I thought, and I think for a short period of time, we it felt like it had sort of brought us together. And then it switched. And and now, given you know what what has happened in in uh, in, in Minneapolis with the, the, the killing, the murder of, of George Floyd and the resulting protests around the country, the divisions are even, you know, it's like the scab has been ripped off and there's blood everywhere. Um, and I just, it just feels like such a seminal moment that um, we as humans have got to come to grips with, otherwise we're witnessing our own destruction. So I I can I wanted to say a couple of things about if I may respond um, please yeah so first of all I guess the historian in me as well as like the cultural critic cultural spectator has to ask a, a, a question that's just immediately adjacent to, to what you just described, and that is, what are the conditions that would enable us to come together, and or what are the conditions that, that preclude that, right, or that work against our coming together? And so, in other words, like, just, like, pragmatically, like, what is it going to take, right, at a policy right. level, at the level of, of vision and leadership? I think we also have to be realists and ask ourselves, in whose interest is it for us to come together? And frankly, in whose interest is it for us to remain divided? And so I can hear, right, the implicitly ideological quality of, of, right, uh, of these comments, but I mm -hmm. think that they're really, really important. And I think that they're central to, um, to this moment that we're living in and to wherever this goes and however it unfolds, what about those conditions and how might we create them? And then again, you know, in whose interest is it to not to, to not have those conditions of possibility being created. So so here's my thought on that. Yeah, yeah. I think that we the people have the power here. I do not believe that this will be solved at the policy level. Mm. I I believe that it really is up to us as individuals to reach out to each other as humans and, and try to find the connection with each other so that we can begin to understand and accept each other for who we are. 
And I think, I think it has to, it's that basic because if we just rely on our policy leaders to do this, we're done. We're done. I, that's my, that's my belief. Now I, I have been very, um, encouraged with some of the, the social media, um, conversations that I've been having over the last 48 hours and some of the the posts that that I have offered um, have sparked a lot of conversation among my black friends and my white friends and this moment to me feels different I actually just am in the middle of writing a blog post about why this feels different to me but I think that at the end of the day it's it's all of us acknowledging that we're the ones who have the power to change this dynamic based on the human relationships that we foster in our own lives. It has to be that nitty gritty, that grassroots in order for this to ultimately change because the system was built for this. Mm. It was built for this. So- and it's going to take us to break it. So I'm going to agree with you. I do. And I do agree with this. Um, But there's this historian in me who just keeps like going back into a critical voice because that's right. I just feel like that perspective, you know, can contribute to to enhancing what you're saying, too. So I will say that, first of all, that that, while that's true um, and it must come from all of us, right, in, in an individual level, I think we always have to acknowledge that power relations are not equal. Right. And so our identities are indeed situated, not just within the personal, but within the cultural, the social, the political, the economic, et cetera, right? It just, and so, um, so there's, there's that. And so I think that, that, that that's just always important. Like how does one create power, particularly while we still acknowledge, right? The, um, the yes. fact that power is not necessarily e- evenly distributed. Um, and then also um, our identities too, for some of us, right? They are also situated institutionally. And that's really interested, interesting because even when we act as individuals, is it even possible to like have a sharp boundary? I think that there's a porous boundary, in fact, between who we are as individual people and whatever it is that we bring to these discussions by virtue of the ways in which we're situated socially, culturally, or institutionally. So not necessarily at the policy level, although I'm hopeful, right, that there can be policy decisions that can get us there too. But I think also, self-consciousness is super important as we recognize the ways in which all of our identities are connected to something beyond ourselves, greater than ourselves, and collective in, in other ways as well. I, I, I agree with you, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're making that point, and I think both things have to happen along mm-hmm. parallel tracks in order for us to ultimately get to a place where where we can live peacefully, you know, where we can live peacefully with each other. And then in the midst of all of this, um, we have the pandemic and we're seeing these throngs of protesters, many of them in masks, many of them not. Uh, I fully expect, and many do, that within the next two to three weeks, we're going to see a surge um, in the number of cases, um, which then brings about a whole nother um, a whole nother conundrum that we have to deal with. And of course, there's a disproportionate number of people of color who are being affected by this, by the, pen, by the, the virus itself. So 
I don't even know what the question is that I'm asking. I guess, I, I guess, from your perspective, um, as a humanist, as a as a, a modern art historian, as a as someone who who connects the dots among all of these different disciplines, what what insight do you have? What hope can you offer us based upon what history says and your knowledge of human nature in crisis? I guess what I'm most hopeful about now is it sort of takes us back to where we began um, earlier. It's around modern technology and the paradigms of modern technology. This has to do with how, who gets to be represented, how people can be represented and how people can represent themselves. And so, um, and there too, again, it's not going to be equal. The media paradigms will not be equal. Of course, they'll always be inflected. And this is your domain too, Linda, right? Like, you, right, as far as how the media paradigms will be tilted or inflected, depending on, again, who's doing the production and, and why and what's wanted. But um, I think that there is the possibility for a different kind of representation now and a kind of multiplicity of representation because of the era that we're living in regarding the documentation of crimes and abuses, um, the idea of what it looks like when you have collective gatherings, um, what it looks like um, to be powerful. Um, and even, I don't know if there are something like best practices of care and or self-care um, regarding Black Lives Matter, or if one is going to go protest, what do we need to do to take care of ourselves because we're already on the front line again and again and again. So how can, like, so given that you're going to have a collective or communal, you know, gathering, okay, then what does that mean? Because it, it's all about social, you know, cohesiveness and continuity, not social distance. It's, you know, drawing together cohesively to draw attention to the social distance, right? And so it's another paradox. So given all of that, what do we need to do to protect ourselves? Because once again, here we we are on the front lines and hence in the midst of vulnerability. And so, um, so again, I don't know if there's a conversation for in the future that you might have with a healthcare professional about, you know, public health measures with collective protests or, you know, or collective gatherings, you know, whether That's it's a, a great idea, whether yeah. it's worship, whether it's worship, whether it's about, you know, meetings and organization, whether it's about public protests, whatever it is, it's, you know, how can we be self-protective um, because that's always all about boundaries, right? Amidst the need to dismantle boundaries and have kind of collective gatherings. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's probably space for a conversation with a healthcare professional and maybe in dialogue with a political organization. You know, I just, I don't like, yeah. what, what might that look like? So, so that, that's yeah. not my area, but these are the kinds of things I would want to be thinking about. Yes, yes. I, I like that idea and I, I will definitely pursue that. You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis, which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy, and implemented social distancing measures quickly, limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stockers added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information, and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. 
I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. So in the midst of all of this, um, you are doing your work in palliative care at MD Anderson. Um, so while the pandemic and the virus and you know racial unrest and everything is in the forefront of our minds, there are still people in this country who have diseases that are killing them and they are in the last days of their life. Mm-hmm. And part of your work is to be with that person and the person's family. So tell us a little bit more about what that aspect of your work is and then how it has been impacted by the current environment, if you will. Absolutely. So I will connect that question to the conversation we've been having. And I'll say that again and again, the issue that comes up with what with everything we're talking about, whether it's socially and politically, whether it is, you know, um, with my work at Anderson, and frankly, whether it's about teaching as well, is in this COVID age, the key question and challenge seems to be, how do we create presence and intimacy in the midst of social distancing, right? So it's yet another paradox and it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous and it seems to be, it's pandemic, right? It's the thing that seems to be associated with the pandemic is that paradox of creating that intimacy in the midst of social distancing. So that's that's the first thing I think I would wanna say about this. Um, so um, my work at MD Anderson has shifted radically since mid-March. So for 11 years, exactly 11 years, I have been in person on site every week week at MD Anderson in um, really in the acute palliative care, um, the inpatient unit, um, uh, and accompanying people at the end of life. But since mid-March, Anderson, like so many of the hospitals, do not allow visitors anymore um, because of the pandemic. And so what that means is that um, I no longer have access, right, to those physical spaces. And in palliative, everything is so delicate. It's all about timing. It's, It's the end stage of life with terminal cancer. And so physically, emotionally, temporally, in every way, everything is so delicate. It's very, very difficult to do that work remotely. Um, It has happened remotely, um, where I have worked by telephone with a family. Um, And um, now in this age, I can offer either a Zoom visit or a telephone call where I can do the work. And I'll describe the work in in just a a few minutes if you'd like that. But but in doing this work now to have to, once again, it's the same paradox. How do we create that intimacy in this age of remoteness and social distancing? So the challenges are just enormous when doing this work. And I'm just hopeful that we'll be able to come to a time when I can get back in person to do the work. Because presence is presence, right? And there is something um, much more um, substantial about about that, I think. But um, nonetheless, it is, it is still a meeting of the minds and hearts whenever the work unfolds. So please do explain, describe what the work is so we have a better understanding. Yeah. And so um, I'll describe the work as though I'm going into the unit as I have done and as I will do again when we are on the other side of this. So um, I am a literary artist, so I'm not a visual artist. I don't draw pictures. I work with people's words. I work with language. And so what will happen is when I go in, I go in one day a week and um, I don't wear a white coat and I don't bring any technology in with me. I do have a badge. I'm part of the workforce group, but I do this pro bono and I just look like, you know, just a nice 
nice lady. I don't look like a doctor or Professor Brennan, right? And so I go in, I always look up at the board um, and it's the unit I work on is a 12 bed inpatient unit. So I just look and see who's on the board that's called the census. And I just get out my little notebook and pen, no technology, just pen and notebook. And I make a list of the names and then I ask the nurse who is responsible for that patient, you know, are they still able to speak? Um, and if so, what at what level are they oriented? One, two, three, four. So oriented times four is like you and I are talking now. And then as you move toward the end of life, there's a progressive disorientation that has to do with medicine and other conditions as the disease progress takes hold. And then oriented times one is just minimally oriented, can barely speak or just indicate commands. And then after that, the person is actively dying. And so then there's a process of active death um, as well. So I just need to know kind of where they are on that continuum and whether or not they speak English. And really that's all that I need to know um, because it, it's a diverse um, international center and, um, and I just need to know about the language requirements too. And so once I have that, um, that list, I can only see a few people. So I always ask the nurse, okay, who is in the most pain? Not who has the best story, but who's in the most distress, suffering, or anxiety. So I always triage it that way with potentially who, who, could, who needs this the most or where might there be the greatest benefit. And so then I just go down, once I have that, that smaller you know, sense of, the, of who's there, I just go down the list, I knock on the door very gently, and then I just go in and I introduce myself and I do not say I'm Dr. Brennan or Professor Brennan, I just say, my name is Marsha and I'm an artist in residence here in MD Anderson, come on Thursdays, I talk with people, and I'm wondering if I could talk with you for just a minute. And then the person will look up at me, and if they're able to, they'll, they'll indicate yes, whether that's possible or or not. And so, and then I'll just say, thank you. Um, is one side or the other better for you? Because sometimes there's hearing loss or there are machines or whatever it is. You never want to make anyone feel strained. And then I'll ask if I might sit down. And so then when I'm seated, I just talk with people is again like we're talking like I would talk with anyone the I, I'm not there it's not a doctor patient relationship and the work I do is not offered as a therapy it's offered as an intervention and in that intervention we're sitting together in our common humanity and so you just always meet people wherever they are and so I typically start by asking people where they're from again because people come from all over the world as well as just down the road and so it's fascinating to hear where people are from and then depending on the person's level of energy, if they're really very, very tired or short of breath or it's difficult for them, I don't ever want to make them strain. So if I need to cut to the chase quickly, I will ask them if there's an image in their mind that has special meaning and significance for them, and it can be anything in the world, but something special for them, what would that be? Then as they describe whatever that is, I just take my pen and my notebook and I start making notes. I just take notes verbatim of what they're saying. And during the visit, I and sometimes like it'll be like a conversation. So I may ask the person to describe that a little more fully or tell me more about this or, or whatever it is. But I'll take their words and I will put them in successive lines that look like a kind of freeform poetry. And then I'll read the story back to the person and I'll make any additions or corrections that they want. And then I will inscribe that story in a handmade paper journal, which will be a gift for the person to keep for themselves and their family. So it all happens in one sitting. Um, it can take anywhere from 10 minutes to three or four hours, depending on what's going on in that room and what the needs are in that room. And it's always very beautiful and very humbling. And I'm just so honored to be there every single time. What a gift. What a gift for the person 
to be able to express their thoughts and their memories in the final moments of their life and then to be able to have that read back to them and then to be able to give it to the family members is just it's a it's a priceless gift um tell me a little bit about the family reaction the the patient reaction and if you're able to i would love for you to share a story or two yeah um if you if you can of course. And so um, the, it's a gift for all of us. And I'm always the one who feels so grateful for the privilege of being present. So so again, it's, it's pandemic, right? It's a gift for everyone. It relates to all people. Um, and I will also say that sometimes the stories are very personal and they relate just specifically to the person and their family. So if the image is about their family, it will be very personal. And so that story stays with that family. But very often people will speak about larger topics that can relate to the landscape or to um, their visions of society or to their spirituality. And when we get into these larger themes, um, I will sometimes ask the person for permission to share their story. And then at that point, I will tell them that, um, that I'm a professor at Rice and that, um, you know, that I, I'm, that I write books on these topics, that I teach classes on these topics, and that I speak at medical conferences and all that, and that I would love for their wisdom to be shared, because it's all completely true. And then may I have permission to share parts of your story, um, always, you know, de-identified and HIPAA compliant. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. and they will, um, 99 times out of 100, they will say yes, and I will mm-hmm. thank them again. So then they are our teachers. And I just want to emphasize that I'm just a link in a chain. And so they are our teachers. You're the the conduit. Yeah. (laughs) A conduit. Yes. And so, so this, and so that's really interesting because whether or not the story is shared in all cases, the story has to come from the person through me back to the person. So the Mm. circuit goes that way. And so it'll either go that way and stay that way or go that way and then go out into society. Right. When I speak and share their stories, depending on whatever, it makes sense for the nature of that story, whatever is appropriate under those circumstances. So the person, when they hear their story, they're very often moved to tears. And I will often, because doing this work for so many years, you can feel like there's so much, so much of one's heart. So before I even get started, I will say two things. I'll say, fair warning, this story is very beautiful. So like, heads up, get ready. And, and I'll say, I'll say, okay, where's the tissue? I think we need a tissue before I even get started. I might encourage them to have a sip of water first. And then I will also say that if anything that I say in the story is too much for you to hear, if it's overwhelming, you put your hand up like this and I'm talking. So it gives them, again, the idea of the safe. And and I've never, it's so interesting. They never, they no one ever, like they want to hear this. And once it gets yeah. rolling, like they want to hear this. So, um, but at least this way too, they know, it gives them space to know that they're in control, right? It's not right. something. Right. So, um, so can so, you share a story with us? Beautiful. Yes, I can. This is very beautiful. And what I love about this story is that, um, again, it's serendipitous in that um, when I went into the room on this day, there were, there was a middle-aged woman and her husband, her husband was in the patient, the patient, he was in the bed, and he was active, meaning that we were in the final few hours of his life. So I worked with her and her family to create a tribute to this man. And so it was very much a family narrative. And so we did that work. And that was itself, you know, a good hour while we had that visit. But it was after we completed that visit, that the woman then opened up and shared a story that she felt just about her own life that related to what she was living in now, but also to a larger vision that she had. Um, 
it's just exquisitely beautiful. So imagine, like, again, just this moment where where the scene is not pretty, right? I mean, it's the end of life from terminal cancer, and you're losing the love of your life. And in that moment of darkness, she rose into this light to tell this story. So her story, and these are her words verbatim, <clears throat> it's called The Two Sides of the Tapestry. What she said, she said, when I was a child, my mother would take me to visit a cloistered Carmelite convent in West Texas. The nuns did beautiful sewing, and they made absolutely wonderful lace garments. One time I was in the sitting room. The nuns were showing my mother their handwork. There was a large tapestry on the wall. On one side was a beautiful, bright scene of a man and a woman and a castle and animals. But when I looked at the backside, I wanted to throw up because it was just a mass of tangled threads in very bright, garish colors. <clears throat> it didn't look like anything but confusion. As a child, I would stand right at the edge of the thick tapestry. I would look at the curtain flat, and then I would look around at the back for as long as I could stand it until it made me feel sick. Then I would turn around to the front and see the beautiful picture. Our life here on earth may appear through the glass darkly, like the backside of the tapestry, where we don't see the patterns and we can't make sense of it. That's like looking at my husband lying there in his bed, dying of cancer. But God sees in the light and he can see the pattern. Even as a child, I knew that the tapestry was speaking to me and I knew it was God. <sighs> it is so breathtaking and such a perfect analogy for where we are in this country. We are, we are looking and living in the backside of the tapestry right now. And we don't know, it's hard to see the beauty. We have to really look for the beauty that's there. And on, truly only God knows how this will, will turn out. Or how long it will take to or play how long out. It will take. Yeah. Or what that pattern yeah. looks like on the other side. Um, yeah. And that oneness. I mean, what would it look like for it to be a unified tapestry and not that tangle um, where people are valued, right, in their uniqueness yeah. and in our collective sense of presence? Absolutely. I think that is the perfect way to wrap up our conversation. I think we've kind of come full circle with that. Um, Dr. Marsha Brennan, you are a treasure, and the work that, that you are doing with your patients and their families and with what you are giving to your, your students in, in your classes as you teach them about human nature and, and crisis and, and art and history and how it all comes together. It's just remarkable. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we had already planned to have this conversation today. It, it took a little bit of a different turn just based upon, you know, what's going on in the world. But I think we were able to, to bring it full circle and to help people kind of see the big picture and connect the dots. 
And I thank you for that, but I really just have to insist that I'm I'm honored to be here and I'm just a servant. And so literally, it's just a pass through. So whether the mission is there in the clinic or whether here it's talking to you and communicating or and what's near to my heart, whether it's in the classroom with my own wonderful students and then the work that they will go on to do, so many of them as future doctors, um, that that's really where it lies and how we can get these stories heard and get the visions out there. Thank you so much for sharing the stories and for sharing your work with us and just be well, stay safe and continue doing what you're doing. And for all of our audience out there, thank you for giving Dr. Marsha Brennan permission to speak and for having the courage to listen to what she has to offer us with an open mind. And you too, be well, stay safe. We'll see you next time.